The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. Hello there and welcome to our weekly podcast. This is a compilation of our best interviews from the last week, all in one place. On Tuesday's show, Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College, joined me in studio to chat about his new book, In Search of Madness. One woman's love of fashion from Paris to Geneva, Galway woman Ashley MacDonald's success story. Ed Sheeran on his Irish roots and his run of Irish shows and return to Croke Park this weekend. And on Friday's show, Jamie Duffy, a young musician who found solace and worldwide success in late night piano playing. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin and the author of a wonderful new book. It's called In Search of Madness, a Psychiatrist Travels Through the History of Mental Illness. Brendan, welcome and thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. I've always been intrigued by psychiatry as a, as a job and as a, as a world in which to inhabit. So tell me, at what point in your medical training did you think, because you've got so many places you can go when you study medicine, so many. Uh, did you have another idea of somewhere you'd like to go and then something happened or was it always psychiatry? Well, I wanted to be either a psychiatrist or an economist uh, for some reason. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, it never made much sense. And I wanted both of these things while I was at medical school and I was a little uncertain. But but then one day when I was um, studying to be a doctor and doing my psychiatry, a community mental health nurse took me out in the car for a day to visit people at home yes. where people with, you know, enduring mental illness, severe schizophrenia were being treated at home. And in the book, I talk about a trip out to the middle of Connemara with this nurse in his car where we met this man working in a field and he had schizophrenia, mm. but he had been out of hospital for many, many decades, having been in hospital for a long time. And he was being treated at home with medication and with support. And he was standing there in the sunshine. It was a weekend like the weekend just gone in yes. the West. And um, and he, he was well. He, he had a serious illness. He was being treated effectively at home in his field, on his farm, living his life. And he had severe schizophrenia at the same time. Mm. And just, I was... I was just flabbergasted. This took treatment out of the hospital. It was someone living their life. It was inspiring. And on, on that day um, in Connemara, I decided I was going to be a psychiatrist. And here I am. Amazing. You, you, you saw the crystal clear benefits of good medication, good uh, doctoring, if you will, yeah. and the ability to solve what so for, for centuries people thought were, was incurable or Absolutely. impossible. I mean, it's still a very difficult condition, schizophrenia. Sure. The treatments are imperfect and delivering treatment can be hard. But just that, se- that day, I saw such a positive outcome. I saw such possibility for a, a condition which, as you say, is in many ways so mysterious. Lots of people are almost even frightened to talk about it. And yet I saw that positive change is possible, treatment is possible, and I became a psychiatrist. The world, for want of a better expression, but the area of mental illness is such a conundrum, isn't it? Because you wonder how far you can go to treat it. And also it's so individual and so personal. Is it a frustrating job? 
Oh, it's a wonderful job for the very reason you just outlined. We don't really understand how the human brain works biologically. We have a lot of information about it, a lot of neuroscience, um, but we don't really understand why we think what we think, why yeah. we do what we do. Yeah. And if you add to that, if you like, when the brain is having a bad day or when it moves into a state of illness, we understand even less when things, you know, slip out of sync that little bit. And then the next step is that we try and treat it, which is more difficult again. So there are so many uncertainties, so much that's not known and so much that we need to do, that the field is vast and that either that attracts you or or that makes you anxious. And that vastness, that unknown attracts me because I see clear evidence that we can help despite the lack of knowledge. Treatments work. I'm thinking of Ernest Shackleton only because he wanted to go into the great unknown and wanted to go to places that nobody could possibly get to. And you know, there's an arrogance to humanity, isn't there, in terms of how much we think we know or how much we should know. And yet we're surrounded constantly by questions, constantly by uncertainty and lack of knowledge. Yes, we are. And, you know, there are still things that we can do in this great field of things that we don't know. Um, but we do need to find out more. We need to put things on a firmer footing, a little bit, you know, more science, more research and so forth. But in the meantime, um, there are treatments that help, treatment programmes that are really good. And I go through various treatments uh, in, in the book. I talk about bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression and all of these conditions. Um, and that's what attracts me. The fact that despite not knowing so much, there is a great deal that we can do. And that's what's so great about your book is that for me, it's history, OK, but also the combination of history and, and psychiatry. And you, you make it very accessible because you, you go right back, as far back as you possibly can, to try and discover when did the human species decide that there was such a thing as, I don't know what they called it then, but mental illness or certainly a challenge to the, the brain or the mind. How far did you go back to or did, where did you get to, to where you discovered some class of line in the sand that says it begins here? Well, it's it's so far because the further back you go, the more traces of this you find. You know, in all the great religious scriptures, the Bible and all, all religious traditions, there are there's talk of people who were people who were mad, to use the words that were used at the time. There's talk of people who um, had this interpreted as divine inspiration, divine possession. And then as medical traditions emerged, particularly in the Islamic world, you found a desire to care, a desire to look after people. Um, but always, always with mental illness also came a desire to contain uh, care and custody. In every tradition, there was not only uh, the rhetoric of caring, there was also the practice of custody. And of course, this reached its pinnacle in the 1800s when many countries, including our own, opened up enormous mental hospitals which persisted and still have a, you know, an echoing legacy today. So it's as far back as you can go you find people concerned about madness and losing touch with reality, but always the impulse to care and to help has been coupled with um, custody, control and s- some pretty scary sounding treatments that were uh, implemented. Well, that's what I want to mention, because the third C I'd add to care and custody is cruelty. There was a terrible sense if you, you at one point, if you were if you were, let's say, mentally ill, you were a witch, uh, you were definitely othered and you might be sent off to some institutions, which, in fact, and you, you talk about this sometimes, even if you were completely uh, sane, quote unquote, you were sent mm. there because you were as a matter of convenience to society or politics. Let's talk a little bit about the cruelty of, of yeah. that you came across. 
Well, I mean, what happened was in the 1800s, big asylums were built, large mental hospitals were built all over the world. And once you build a large institution, it will be immediately full of people. Societies and communities use institutions. So, for example, in Ireland, uh, for much of the history of the mental hospitals, you didn't need a medical certificate to be admitted. Uh, you didn't need a doctor's note. Um, so an asylum board could admit someone and discharge somebody. And you had uh, uh, communities um, using the institution. So there was a phenomenon in Ireland called wintering in, where if a family had someone who might have been mentally ill, might have been intellectually disabled, or might have been just odd and eccentric, mm -hmm. um, would be put into the uh, mental hospital uh, for the winter and taken out in the autumn when they were needed on the farm again and then put back in again in the winter. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, and go on, please. So, so, so what you had was the social institutions being used by communities. Doctors became more involved as time went on. And I wish I could say that we made an enormous difference when we became involved, but we didn't really. Yeah. Um, you cannot stop societies using institutions. And in Ireland, we used so many institutions you know, uh, be it yes. a mother and baby homes, be it uh, industrial schools, Magdalene laundries. But interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church did not run our mental hospitals, which were the biggest institutions of all of these by a very long chalk. So the usual, the, the current narrative in Irish history, which is that we blame the Roman Catholic Church, and, and indeed it is blameworthy in many respects, uh, but, but we don't have that uh, for the largest institutions in our history, which were the mental hospitals. In this country. In this country. Um, before we get there, let's to, to those who don't know the origin of the word bedlam, let's go there figuratively, but physically you went to the hospital. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so bedlam was one of the earliest uh, psychiatric hospitals, certainly in Europe. Um, it's located in London. It's moved around London um, and it became notorious. It very large, notorious institution, uh, which is now doesn't operate as such. But there is a, a museum set up to the history of psychiatry and you can travel there to London to see it. And it it's, it's a very uh, salutary uh, place to visit. It's very beautiful, as many of these um, institutions were. And you can see this in Ireland now. If anyone goes over to TU Dublin, you can see Grange Gorman is now restored to its original beauty mm. uh, when it was an institution. And it's the same in Bedlam in London. Um, this enormous institution, people detained there for long periods of time and the history now very appropriately explored in, in, in a very sensitive uh, and moving exhibition that's well worth going to see. And it, it's it's Bethlehem, isn't it? Bedlam. It's, yes. it's just a squeezed down version of it. Yes. If, if yes. someone says it's Bedlam, out there today. It's because yeah. of the... It's because of the old hospital. And, uh, you know, it, it led the way in lots of things. There was a practice, uh, for example, of members of the public going to view uh, patients in Bedlam, to view people who were severely mentally ill. It was seen as a form of entertainment and amusement. It was also seen as a form of income for the institution. So again, you have this very uneasy relationship between the institution and the community that it serves or the community that created it. Uh, you mentioned uh, Grange Gorman there, which, of course, uh, lots of experimental treatments carried out in Ireland and and. Um, you'd say that from its inception, the hospital at Grange Gorman was to the forefront of therapeutic innovations in asylum care. Um, and did we, uh, do, are we did we cover ourselves in glory when it came to mental illness in the 20th century in Ireland? Well, you know, by the time the 20th century came around here in Ireland, we had about 20,000 people in our mental institutions, which is more per head of population than any other country in the world before or since. So from the get go, we were in a bad position. We had these huge institutions. Why so many? Like why per, per, per capita did you... 
Well, it certainly wasn't because of an epidemic of mental illness. It was because of an epidemic of mental hospitals. We just love building institutions and putting each other in them. It's oh <laughs> a very stark thing to say, yeah. But, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had some very bad mental health legislation as well, which we kept changing. Um, but we had this huge reliance on institutions. I mean, if you take the town of Balnasloe in 1940, mm-hmm. the town had a population of 5,300 people. And of those, 2,000 were patients in St. Bridget's. So if you've that number of people, patients in the hospital, everyone else in the town either works in it, they supply it or they're in some way dependent upon it. So if you can imagine, Ryan, a local politician suggesting shutting down the hospital or scaling it down, they're going nowhere. It's, it's an economic powerhouse. The town is absolutely dependent upon it. So no one's going, you know, very few people have an interest in shutting it down or yeah. scaling it down. So when you say, why were the institutions so big? We used them and communities used them. And I mean, we as, as in societies, not, 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 not necessarily the medical profession, although we were clearly involved. Yes. Um, but we we did introduce a series of therapies here in Ireland uh, as, as, as around the world. We introduced something called malaria therapy in Grange Gorman in the 1920s that involved uh, importing mosquitoes and giving patients malaria in order to treat a condition um, uh, known as general paralysis of the insane or advanced syphilis. So uh, that, that took place in Ireland. And what, let's take that to the end. So the malaria does what to the patient? Or... Well, the patient has to develop malaria, has to get treated with quinine and recover from the malaria. And after that, it turns out that their mental illness, as it were, um, had improved. Um, this was known for some time. A physical illness could produce an improvement in a mental illness. And this malaria treatment treatment uh, was introduced in 1917 and the instigator of it won a Nobel Prize in 1927 for it and the most amazing part of this story Ryan is that it seems to have worked Right. it seems it did reduce the death rate from advanced syphilis in the asylums so the history is a very complicated one and full of unexpected stories like that Jumping back to well you said 1940 so we're still in, in the time of World War II and you, you talk about uh, Action T4 yep. Um, which is what? So there was an idea in the early 1900s that mental illness was due to degeneration, that biological and genetic degeneration uh, produced severe illness and was filling the asylums. So people wanted to empty the asylums and particularly in Germany, a programme of sterilisation of people with mental illness was introduced in the 1930s. And then this escalated, of course, in 1939 um, to a a programme of killing uh, Mm -hmm. people with mental illness and neurological disorders orders um, and all told um, between 200,000 and 300,000 people with mental illness were killed and um, murdered as it were as, as, as part of the uh, Nazi programme um, between 1939 and 1945. Um, this was consistent with eugenics which was a movement in um, psychiatry at the time but not interestingly in Ireland. The idea of eugenics didn't particularly catch on among the Irish asylum doctors. Were lobotomies carried out in Ireland a lot or can, can you quantify how, how that worked? Or? Yes, some lobotomies were carried out. So lobotomy was a, a, a brain surgery introduced in 19, 
the 1930s. And again, the instigator, uh, Monitz in Portugal, won a Nobel Prize for this, um, which, which involved severing or cutting parts of the connections in the brain. They were carried out particularly in the US, most famously on Rosemary Kennedy. Um, sister of uh, John F. Kennedy and Robert. Um, in Ireland, uh, there wasn't as much by way of lobotomy. Some hundreds of lobotomies were performed uh, in the Richmond Hospital, uh, which is now, uh, uh, you know, that lovely red brick uh, building yes, over yeah. there. It served as a courtroom for a while. Mm -hmm. um, so there were some lobotomies carried out in Ireland. And in in the book, I do recount the history of a man who had a lobotomy and uh, and said that it actually helped him. Yeah. But he was very much the exception. Lobotomy was the biggest thing single mistake in the history of psychiatry and lives were ruined by it, including that of uh, Rosemary Kennedy. Yeah, desperate. She, of course, was ended up in the care of nuns and essentially, you know, sent yeah. away and, and, and nothing. She she was considered to be too lively for the family. I think Joe Kennedy Sr. thought and yes. said, lobotomise my daughter and uh, and be done with it. Yes, uh, I mean, she, she, <coughs> does, she does appear to have been very lively and had some difficulties. But then in 1941, at the age of 23, she had the lobotomy. Uh, everything got worse. She needed institutional care for the rest of her life. And she died at the age of 86 in 2005 with severe physical mental problems and incontinence for all those decades as a result of the surgery. Um, I remember uh, I, I always uh, if I'm ever taught by psychiatry I always mention my father who was is, as you may or may not know was a psychiatrist in, in John of God's for many years and he often said and it was a really profound thing said to me when I was a teenager which was he said if you have a few pints enjoy yourself but he said try and stay off cannabis and, and, and that kind of thing because he says I deal with too many too many young people who have gone psychotic from and it scared me away from it forever. All of the yeah. drugs, actually, bar the booze. But uh, he said, uh, you know, um, just be careful because, um, it, as I say, too many um, good people are lost to yeah. that. You know, and some people can do it and get away with it and, and enjoy, mm. and that's what it is. I'm not being down on it necessarily, and but it's for the same token. It was a it was a scary warning because you talk about it too. You say that's that that's that's a that's a tricky one. Yes, yes, I, I do. And I mean, I came to train in psychiatry in Dublin. I remember your your father saying similar things, uh, to, to be honest, and being very clear about it. So cannabis is a very interesting one. The research is now very very clear that cannabis presents a risk to mental health that people can become psychotic, depressed, anxious when they use it. Um, it's funny when you talk to anyone who uses cannabis and you say, you know, and if I say, you know, it can affect the mental health of some people, they all say, yes, of course, I know that. Yeah. They all know somebody who became paranoid, went into their house and hasn't come out. Um, and the research now overwhelmingly supports that. And I talk about this in the book and uh, the fact that cannabis uh, presents a risk to mental health. What's less clear, though, is what we do with that information. You know, not everything that's bad for us is banned. Not everything is illegal that's yeah. bad for us. Things like cigarettes and alcohol. And look and what alcohol does to people, too. Obviously, you know, we can get into that uh, debate. But yeah, I mean, it, but, it, but now, it's yeah. something of a separate debate, yes, what we is, do yeah. with the information. But we can be clear that cannabis presents a risk to mental health. And I do talk about this uh, in, in the book a good deal, as you point you out. You do. And you say that cannabis is the most common illegal drug that I come across in psychosis. It, yeah, psychosis is, uh, you know, severe mental illness involving a, a, a disconnect with reality in at least one respect. And to be honest, I very rarely come across a young man with psychosis who isn't smoking cannabis. It's almost a given. Remarkable. You say that the effects of mental illness are exacerbated. That's something I want to light upon for a moment. Exacerbated by homelessness, discrimination, unemployment, imprisonment and social exclusion. So if somebody is going through life with mild, let's call it mild mental illness, they might be treatable in a certain manner. But if they have these things I've just mentioned, quoting you, 
um, this will just take them down a terrible rabbit hole. Yeah, is, I, that, is that a fair appraisal of... That's absolutely accurate. I mean, we live in a society that is hugely intolerant of and unforgiving of mental illness. People with, um, if we take the example of schizophrenia, increased risk of homelessness, increased risk of early death, increased risk of imprisonment. And this amplifies the effect of any mental illness greatly for the person and for their families. Okay. So the biggest deficit, in addition to mental health services, I guess, um, the, the, the largest deficit is in terms of social care and we we have a very low rate of involuntary admission or sectioning here in Ireland and a low number of inpatient psychiatric beds, which is a good response to a very difficult past. Mm. However, it comes at a cost. People with mental illness who are homeless, people with mental illness in prison and lots of people with mental illness out there at home may be too ill to accept treatment, but not ill enough to meet the rigorous criteria for treatment without consent. So we have a lot to do in terms of services and in terms of the uh, if you like, the social surroundings and the the way we treat people with mental illness in society more generally. We'd probably, and my last question to you is this, we probably would like to think that um, talking about mental illness, particularly if you are somebody with a mental illness, has become less taboo and much more socially normal to talk about. You've written now your travels through the history of mental illness. Here we are in 2022. Do you think that taboo still exists or do you think we're just trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by saying it doesn't exist? <laughs> I, th- I think the taboo exists. Mm. We are better at talking about these things. Real progress has been made and real progress has been made in services as well. But we do have a good distance to go yet. The experience of severe psychological suffering or mental illness is still an isolating one, a lonely one and a stigmatised one for very many people. So while it's good we talk about it, talk about the depression, the anxiety and so forth, we need to broaden that conversation that little bit more to more severe depression bipolar disorder, schizophrenia and other conditions um, that maybe we're, we're a little too anxious to talk about, but we shouldn't be so anxious. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for your time this morning. We only scratched the surface of what is a fascinating look into the area of mental illness through history. And we'll talk again, I've no doubt. Professor Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin. Your book is called In Search of Madness, A Psychiatrist Travels Through the History of Mental Illness. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you very nice much. Nice to see you. It's uh, eight minutes to ten. and I want to welcome Ashley McDonald to studio this morning. Ashley, you're welcome. Nice to meet you. Hi, Ryan. And thank thanks you for, for being here. Me. No, no, thank you for being here because you, you were given this title uh, recently as the Galway's Real Life Emily in Paris. And I don't know if that makes your heart leap or makes your, you want to squirm. How do you feel about that? Probably between the two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it made me laugh anyways. But look, I'm glad to give people a few laughs if it, if it can inspire them no, a little bit on their own way. Your story is is intriguing because you're 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 so uh, uh, diligent in 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 the way you've you've gone through life. So let's 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 go through it from the beginning. If you you're from the west of Ireland, yes, I'm from Galway. What part of Galway? Cromwell, a small village Beautiful. near Athenry, where I studied. And you were sporty, is that right? For 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 a lot of the time, and but. Clearly fashion then knocked yeah. on the door. <laughs> fashion that... took over. Yeah. I was an athlete for years um, from like 7 to 17, 18 with Crawhill Athletic Club, which set me up for life. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like if you have sport and you learn how to set goals and yeah. have common goals, but also individual goals, you can go do anything. So I always say everything I've done, it's really thanks to my early days. It gave you sort athlete. of a discipline of sorts. Then. Discipline, yeah. but also a sense of responsibility and 
also a, sen- a sense of success when you have your wins and you celebrate them, which yeah. is fantastic and why I think sport is really, really important, not just for kids, but... Oh, and how to deal with maybe defeat or what have oh, you. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's probably yeah. the most important thing. It's the failings and knowing how to get over them and keep going. So how do we go from then the the, the, <laughs> the singlet to the, to the, you know, the dressage? If yeah, you know. I'd love to go back and redesign those singlets, actually. I, 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 I bet. <laughs> um, well, I loved fashion and in Galway, I didn't have a huge exposure to it mm. other than through media and through TV, through radio, and I was always obsessed. So I had heard about this exhibition in London. I was uh, 16, 17 at the time, and it was a Christian Dior exhibition in Somerset House. So it was my dream to go to this exhibition. Well, that, that's kind of an unusual dream for a young person yeah. to want to go and see that. But but yeah. obviously you had something playing in your brain that you wanted to Yeah, I pursue. had it in my head. So I managed to convince my mum to go with me. And she had lived in London for years and we'd never been, I'd never been and we'd never been together, obviously. Yeah. So we went, went to the exhibition and it was all of the original drawings and illustrations from Dior and his first perfume designer. Mm-hmm. René Gouraud was his name. And I just fell in love and I knew I had to work for Dior. So that was the goal. I was, yeah, I think I was 16 at the time. And I said, right, I'm, this is the goal. I need to learn French. And then I'm moving to Paris and I'm going to work for Dior. Didn't know how it was going to happen, but that was, that was the dream. Well, I love that ambition <laughs> at such a young age. And, and also like we just, we just left the pitch and now we're in yeah. Dior uh, exhibition in Somerset. <laughs> and now we have young, younger you sitting there going, I, I now know what, what I want. Yes. Now that's all very well and good, but how do you make... It happened. I mean, where, where, yeah. did, where did you begin? I'm fascinated to know. Well, I thought the only way was through design. And I thought I have to be a fashion designer. That's how I'm going to do it. So okay. I went about building a portfolio. I applied to NCAD, LSAD, basically all the art schools in, in Ireland and in London. And I had like an OK response. It wasn't overwhelmingly strong. So it kind of made me a little bit less confident of my design skills. Okay. And I thought maybe there's a different approach to this. So I started looking at all the major luxury brands and luxury groups. So super pragmatic approach to it, actually. So I looked at Dior. They're owned by LVMH Group. It's owned by Bernard Arnault, a Frenchman. And he basically owns, you know, 50% of the luxury uh, brands in the world. And I kind of looked at all the people that worked there and said, well, most of them are French. And most of them have studied in one of five business schools in France. So surely if I just follow that path, someone will will let me in. And that's exactly what I did. So went and studied really hard with um, French, actually. That was the first focus, become fluent. Because without that, uh, I knew I'd, I'd struggle to study in France and go work for these French brands. So I managed that. What clever! So you headed you, off. You kind of did a almost like um you know a CIA. Yeah. <laughs> You're mapping it out in your room, going, "Who are these people? <laughs> Literally, how yeah. do they get there? I mean, that that that, took, that was serious planning. Power of Google search, LinkedIn, and just stalking people online. Honestly, I was able to go through all of the information of all of the brands and see where do they come from, what do they wow. do. And this one school kept coming out, HEC Paris. And I knew if I can get into HEC Paris, I'll probably be taught by people from the industry. Yeah. And I will be amongst all the other people that want to do the same Determination thing. Determination so, yeah. is, is, is <laughs> remarkable. Okay, so how did you, uh, where did you go from school, by the way, in terms of studying? and? So I found this amazing program at DCU, actually. So that's what I decided. I kind sure. of gambled with the C. I said, well, I knew I had NCAD if I wanted it. So I put it as my second option. And the first one, I put down DCU, Global Business and French. So I knew I'd go to DCU for two years and then France for two years. And you get two degrees, double degree. And when you're in France, you study completely through French, which I thought, well, I'll have to be fluent by the end of that. At least if I pass, it means I've I've absorbed something. So that's what I did. So you're fully immersive in Paris then um, when you got there. Had you you been to Paris before? I had, like... 
you know, to Disneyland when I was very oh, young. You but I, yeah, I remember when I properly moved over with my mum, actually, yeah. I found it really hard the first day. Like, everything went against us. We got fined on the metro. I don't know how. <laughs> I fell in, like, a pothole on the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Does that even exist? I don't know. And I was like, maybe yeah. this was a bad life decision. But in the end, after, like, 48 hours, I was like, okay, this is my city. And it was fine. How, how would you describe Paris to listeners who've never been? I would say don't listen to all of the cliches because a lot of them can be quite negative. Um, I think if you say bonjour to everybody that you meet, you will have 10 times uh, more fun because uh, French people love if you speak French to them. Um, but it's it's an outdoor museum in terms of the yeah. architecture, in terms of the creativity, the design. It's just absolutely yeah. beautiful. <clears throat> I think I fell in love with uh, Paris again recently because I was over there for uh, Patrick's Day event for the Irish in Paris. And maybe it's the age, but but I am now. But I I forgot how beautiful yeah. uh, it is, as you say, an outdoor museum. Everywhere you look, it could be a park bench. Everything. It could yeah. be Père Lachaise uh, yes. um, or Notre Dame, yeah. the big ones. But then there's the little museums, of course, as well. And and the, the boulangerie and the patisserie and everything. Ev- everything. Yeah. There's a certain, there's such a class exactly. to Paris, isn't there? It was designed that way. You know, Napoleon was commissioned. Actually, Napoleon commissioned a hostman, an architect, to mm. design the city and to create a blueprint for all of the architects he wanted to design within the city. So that's why their avenues, the boulevards, everything is incredible. Yeah. Even the interiors of the buildings, they all followed this this blueprint. So Gorgeous. By yeah. design. And you could sit there, as I did, um, having a cup of coffee in, in the, near the Rue Mouftar and in the Latin Quarter and watching watching the human zoo yeah uh, you know and, and again all the beautiful people coming and going there's something about uh, Paris and the smell of cigarettes in the air and the coffee yeah. coming out <laughs> and perfume mixed uh, together uh, yeah of course <laughs> you're quite right uh, but you, you could you could spend all day you don't you nearly don't even need to go to a museum it's just I fascinating think the people watching is probably my favourite part in Paris so with that in mind you you did your t- couple of years in Paris yeah. you you were double degreeing uh, with DCU yeah so and then I did uh, my master's because I I still didn't get into HEC at that point. It was still a goal, but I still wasn't there. This is Parisian the, college. Yeah. That, okay, go on. Exactly. So I got into Naoma Business School. That's the right. one that's partnered with uh, DCU, which is an amazing school. I actually teach there now as well. So very, very much appreciative of everything I got, to, got yeah. to do with Naoma. And then it was time for the master's because in France, basically, you have to have a master's. That's something I learned along the way as well. I said I'd try without it, even though I did so many internships and had been working actually almost full time while studying for my last two years with one of my former um, internship companies. But I realized without a master's, I won't get the positions that I need. So that's just common practice in in France. And it was destiny because then I got to do a double master's as well with Smurfish <laughs> and HEC. So I managed to pair in, the two in, together. In, in, I'm just, you, yeah. I, so many qualifications. <laughs> what, did you, what did you do the master's in then? So it was in business management. And that's what I'd realised actually with these big luxury brands. If you're not yeah. on, on the design side, they want people that have business skills because the luxury fashion and beauty industry, it's a huge business. Um, like the company that I work for, our revenues last year, it was over 2.6 billion euro. So you have to have people with you know, business skills to run this, whether it's marketing, communications or technology, which is ultimately what I focused on. Yeah. So I went to HEC for my master's and Smurfit. So I did a double. I started in Paris and then I came here for a couple of months to Dublin. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't last long because when I got the call, I was on South William Street. I'll never forget it. Basically saying I'd gotten the job at LVMH. So, you know, when could I start? And then I went back to Paris. Okay, we need to explain that LVMH is your mecca. 
uh, yes. work-wise. Yeah. And this is, is, is that Louis Vuitton? Is it, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Tennessee. So they're the biggest luxury group in the world and they own Dior, the brand that I wanted to work for. And suddenly so. the manifestation manifests itself yes. and uh, <laughs> here you are. Um, doing what? Practically, if you're kind of nuts and bolts-wise. Yeah, so I'm obsessed with everything to do with technology and digital. So I always focused on that area. Even when I specialised in my master's, I specialised in luxury strategy and data-driven marketing. Yes. Um, and all my internships were focused on digital and luxury. So I joined the chief digital officers team for the group at group level of LVMH on Avenue Montaigne in Paris. I was a digital analyst. So I looked at all the data that was available for all of the major luxury brands within the group and helped the presidents and CEOs of those brands understand, well, what's happening online with my brand and what's happening with all this different noise before someone actually comes into one of our stores or engages with one of our products. Amazing. So you, were you dealing with a, a generational uh, kind of gulf between, say, mm. the CEO who's going, I don't really know what this computer absolutely. thing is? Did you? You're not oh, absolutely. A, and that, that's why they wanted, I think, some kind of diverse profiles in there like it was really rare to have someone from Ireland that wasn't a native French speaker and I think digital and technology allowed me to have legitimacy in that area as a native English speaker someone who comes from a country that's really associated with technology as well like all of those things massively played in, and in is Ireland country. considered to be a technological sort of um, yeah. outlier if you like uh, in Europe now definitely be- because of all the multinational companies exactly. here really yes. it's got a reputation it does it does because a lot of the and this is what I did afterwards but a lot of the account managers that work in all the major tech companies like in Google where I worked after yeah. that manage LVMH and all of these other brands they're based in Dublin so yeah it does have a really strong reputation actually within industry So how would somebody listening today n- know if they were to go into a, a, a fashion store mm. if, if you will yeah. how would they know that you've had something to do with <laughs> it all with the experience well, Can d- you give that depends a, on that the brand yeah, yeah I guess like a lot of the projects that I would have launched while <clears> at LVMH and I, at first I was at the group but uh, after six months I made the move and I arrived in Dior so yeah. that was the, the really the dream and uh, I launched hundreds if not thousands of, of projects and campaigns while I was there so for many years I think anyone all my friends who follow me on Instagram were yeah. always seeing what I was doing and then they'd see it in real life which was really cool Like what? Can, for, can you give us a practical example of what you were doing? Yeah well actually one that I have right now um, with the new group that I work for Pooch so Paco Rabanne is one of my brands and last summer we launched a new fragrance called Phantom it's a robot yeah. and we had robots all over the world yeah, uh, these fragrance, huge robots you said, yeah. you said to me you launched yeah. now, think of me as the, as the, the old CEO <laughs> Yeah, a, a new fragrance that's a robot. Yeah, it's I a don't new fragrance and that. it's in the body of a robot. So oh. it's really <clears throat> cool. So the packaging, it looks like a robot. It's actually connected. It's the first connected fragrance in the world. You tap it with your phone and you enter like the metaverse of the fragrance. You've got, what? yeah, you have playlists, you have music. It explains the fragrance. It explains the notes, the origin, the production. You've got filters. You've got and a little it, bit of everything. And is it spraying cologne on you then yeah, in the morning? Yeah, I have one for you, so I'll show it to you're you later. Kidding. <laughs> no, I'm t- you're kidding. No, I'm sure you're joking, but it... it <laughs> It, it, I'm having a toy show moment here for a second. Yeah, it's kids like, love it. <laughs> I was gonna say. So is it like you know in the in the toy show there's these dogs and they yeah. yip 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 and they've been going for a hundred years the, yeah. and they and they they jump up and down. Is exactly. this? Like a hyper modern version of that. A so, hyper luxury version, I would say. Well, okay, so it's mm. like a dog, and like a like a robot dog. It's a robot, yes. <laughs> and I could say I could tap my phone on it and yeah. say. What, uh, you don't have to say anything. <laughs> okay, sorry, I'm taking. <laughs> Just tap your phone. <laughs> uh, let's do this in French. I, I've yeah. got about three words. So, if if I tap the phone, is it always the one fragrance that comes out? So it's not like a choice. You can't say I'm feeling uh, no, like, like this these one, notes today. It's this one fragrance, okay, but so we're this... going to have more. Like we're going to develop more in the future. So, okay, and. Yeah. 
I'm intrigued by this. And I know, it's really What, what cool. else does it do apart from uh, spray the cologne on you? Or Makes the... you feel good, brings you joy. Um, like it, it, at the end of the day, it's a fragrance, but it's in this incredible bottle and it's a collectible. So that's also part of our ESG and sustainability initiatives at Pooch. So you buy that and you have it for life. And okay. then from then on, if you want to keep using that fragrance, you just buy the refill. So you can refill your robot and, and you'll be updated about its uh, online life. I'm flabbergasted about it, but, yeah. it, but is, is your job thoroughly exciting I mean are you yeah. constantly thinking of ideas and do you have a notebook or is it going into your phone I mean just in terms of where you're where you yeah. keep your notes of what you want to do I love my job I actually can't believe it's a real job and <laughs> but th- that's the exciting thing and it's why yeah. I'm really happy to be here today as well to also like let Irish people know like this exists and we can go and live these lives like all the French and the Italians have known about for a long time <laughs> but in Ireland we don't have that kind of history of working in the luxury industry therefore it's hard to know how to navigate yeah and where to enter the market. But I love my job. It's really cool. It's all about innovation and technology. I'm head of digital media and e-commerce for the group. Uh, Congratulations. At a, at global I mean, level, honestly, so. that is an enormous job. And, <laughs> and you're flying the flag, as you say, for the Irish, uh, for Irish people. And I love that you're proud of that. I think that's really yeah. nice. But, but when the first, when you came in during the commercial break to say hello, um, the first thing I said was, oh, you're wearing yellow. And it's a yes. lovely pop of colour, as they say, on all these TV shows. And you said, yeah, I'm head to toe in Irish today. And I thought, that's great. For here we are talking about Dior and all these uh, mm-hmm. luxury brands around the world. And yet you come in here wearing um, Irish um, clothes or designs. Is that right? Yeah, Do you wearing, want to tell us about that? Absolutely. Or? So I'm wearing this really cool suit, this jacket. Uh, it's from Sharon Sweeney. An amazing designer. I met her in person yesterday, picked it up myself. Wonderful. So I actually took the week off from Pooch this week to go and meet with as many designers as possible here in Ireland. Good and the work I'm doing with Digital Business Ireland as well. Uh, so yeah, I love my jacket. I've got a sweater from Urban Aaron, which is making like Aaron sweaters the coolest thing on the planet right amazing. now. Uh, and a bag from Nikki Hoyne. So yeah, Great. all Irish and all sustainable, all really focused on high quality, low quantity, slow fashion. And that's luxury in its essence. And so. Urban Aaron, that sounds great. Is that in, yeah. is, or where are they based? Are they... Um, so it's Christine Murphy is her name and she is from Waterford. Okay, great. So you've got the full Irish there in, in yeah, many respects. Irish, yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's so good to hear about Irish brands um, thriving. Mm. Uh, because we do have a certain look and we have a certain style and I think <laughs> and I think it's getting better and better all the time I think so too every time I come back I'm like wow everyone's more stylish this year <laughs> yeah you, you can feel that in the I air I can feel it you? absolutely so where, yeah. do you, where do you live now and where are you based out of as I say that's a good question so I'm actually not based 100% <laughs> in Paris sadly anymore so the okay. Emily in Paris story was not the most accurate in that sense no um, but nice one <laughs> lasted yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was there for seven years but now I'm actually based in Geneva but I travel like once a month to Paris and quite often to Barcelona as well well, which is the global headquarters of Pooch. They're a Spanish family, so that's where they're based. Well, Geneva, you could be in worse places in the yeah. world. And, and do you get beautiful. back to Galway much or at all? Or Galway, not as often as I'd like, but for the next two years with Digital Business Ireland, I will be back like once a month in Ireland. What is in that Ireland. Digital Business Ireland? I'm not familiar with it. So Digital Business Ireland is Ireland's representative body on all topics to do with technology and digital. Uh, we have 8,000 um, businesses that are members Great. in Ireland, actually. So we basically, like my goal with that is to push as much as possible the upskilling for business owners and people working in, in industry here. Oh, you're just brilliant. I, I, I love, you know, as to, when I talk to the likes of Kelly Harrington and, and Niall Horan and you know, all these people are very successful. They also, and, and are very young, they also want to watch the next generation coming up behind them. And yeah. this is something you're very keen to 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 do, um, which is uh, 
you know, launching programs for ch- for students, I should say, in collaboration with Google. Is that right? Um, so, yeah, when when I was at Google, basically, they have this thing called a 20 percent project. Well, that's what it's labeled as. It was yeah. more like a 120 percent. But yeah. you could spend some of your time um, working on projects outside of your core role. So I knew before I even joined Google, I want that was my goal. When I was at Google, I wanted to launch a program for NCAD or for Irish design students so that they could launch websites, YouTube channels and become actual brands rather than just a few uh, individual pieces that you can't maybe find where you can buy or yes. discover. Yeah. So, um, so you you would say that the the next uh, sorry the, the fashion world in Ireland is is alive, well and indeed um, thriving because you know we've done a few our, uh, interviews here on this program and I just have a feeling we should be. If we, th- 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 we should be doing maybe something about this on the Late Late Show because yeah. it, it's so visual Late Late as well. Show. <laughs> well, why not? I mean, I think they, there was once upon a time something mm. like that, but the Late Late Irish fashion um, yeah. might might be something worth considering as we head into it's the summer. That's what we need. And yeah. In France, they're incredible. Like all of the design, like the fashion design schools in France, they're actually uh, under the Minister of Trade because they really view this as a business. It needs to thrive and they need the business support. And that it's a little bit different here. It's seen more under crafts. Yes. So it's not treated like an industry the way it is in France or in Italy. But I think that's the next step, because if we want to actually create a global platform for these brands, bear in mind, the Irish market is small. So if you are an Irish you know, high end luxury brand in terms of fashion mm-hmm. or accessories, you'll need to look at the US market, the Chinese market. You need to export and sell internationally. So it's technology, I think, has democratized that and it's given people the opportunity to reach luxury consumers all over the world and I think that's how we'll, we'll succeed with Irish fashion. I'm glad to hear that and it's a very positive note which on which to nearly end our conversation but I do want to say to you um, uh, to ask you do you still love magazines hard copy? Yes I do. So do I. <laughs> you can't beat it really. No you can't. I, my mum sends me over all the Irish magazines. Does she? Still. Yeah when I was in Paris now in Geneva I always have them yeah. at home. So. No I, I couldn't agree with you more especially yeah. in fashion I think you, you there's only so much you can try and enlarge your phone to see the detail on it. Absolutely, just spend time with one and because I love fashion so much as well like now when I look through the pages I see projects I've worked on or that my friends have worked on and that's just like I can't believe it. And the other thing that um, and he's somebody I mentioned a bit too is Barry Keoghan the actor and the reason I mention him is because I'm always fascinated by his notebook that he's carried around since he was a teenager to, of, of manifestation I will work yes. with this person I will star with that person I will be in that movie yeah. uh, and all this weirdness to me comes <laughs> good uh, and I, I'm, I'm seriously thinking of buying a notebook because this manifestation thing is is it, it seems to work for people has it, it worked does. for you oh, I mean did absolutely. you, uh, did you, do you how, what, what does it mean can you give me a yeah like, I never called it manifesting I just called it planning but I always write down this is what I want to do and this is how I'm okay, going to do it okay that's a better that's a very kind of human way of putting it yeah I think it seems less like um, wizardry if you just call it planning (laughs) I might have believed in it I'm probably too uh, cynical Uh, sceptical oh my god you're better at at all of these things yeah okay but uh, you're planning as you say much more practical uh, but your planning seems to be you know, working out in terms of what you what what you plan for you seem to achieve and I presume that's through hard work rather than cosmic luck you know what? It's a little bit of knowing what do I need to do and then writing it down and saying, right, I'm just going to go and do it. It's just taking action. I could have all the ideas in the world, but if I just call them dreams and I don't actively pursue them or write down all the little steps, I know I won't reach it. And it comes back to athletics as well, knowing this is the race I'm going to have in six months time and I want to run this specific time. Like that was breaking it down month by month, week yeah. by week, session by session. Wow. This is how I get there. So you, You've got yeah. uh, an extremely um, smart brain. 
um, that must encourage you or just helps you to work work out where you want to be in the world. Uh, David mm-hmm. and Manuth uh, texts in to say, I know I'm getting old when a perfume has a metaverse. And <laughs> I think there's... <laughs> I felt the same. Did, did you actually? Don't worry, yeah. Did you? What did you think when you saw it all? I thought, wow, I thought I was on the ball here, but I've still got a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, people can follow you on Instagram. Um, your Instagram handle is? Yeah, it's uh, ash.mcdonald. Ash. Somebody took my full name, so Ash McDonald for now. What a pain. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I have to say, it's great to meet you, Ashley, and thank you for coming in. Um, all the best people and things come from come out of Galway I'm sure of that you. and um, you're you're one of them and uh, keep flying the flag for Ireland and, and for yourself um, and we'll be seeing a lot more of you I wish you every success in the world thank you very much thanks for your time this morning it's a quarter to ten Ed Sheeran good morning good to talk to you again how are you I'm alright man how are you I'm great welcome back to Ireland how are you feeling we've been tracking your pretty much every movement God help you Man, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back. I played to my like favourite venues in the entire world over the last two days, so I'm feeling um prepped and ready. Yeah, you, you, you got stuck into Whelan's, which is, from what I understand, a really important place to you in your kind of association with Ireland, with Dublin, but also with music. Yeah, I mean, it was the I, I went to go and see uh, an under 18s Damien Rice show uh, with my cousin, probably getting on to 20 years ago and it was it was the day I basically decided I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. I'd spent so long in school trying to be in bands playing rock and roll and you know electric guitars and blah 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 and I, I went to this concert and essentially saw a man for two hours with an acoustic guitar control and and audience and um, it was the moment where you sort of realise oh like that looks yeah. like something that I could do if, oh, I, yeah. if I worked hard enough or whatever so yeah it was it's really nice to go back I mean I go back there anyway just to hang and it, it does a great pint of Guinness but yes. like it's it's just it's just a great music venue it's just really really good and then you got you found yourself in Vicker Street also an important place for you last night yeah well I, yeah I mean Vicker Street I've made this you know known publicly this isn't like the first time I'm, I'm saying it but mm. I do think it's the best venue in, in Europe in terms of like intimacy like you can play a show like it's a big venue but when you play the show you can see everyone at all times. It's not like there's lots and lots of different floors and 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 layers. I just really really enjoy playing it, and it was really really good, fun yesterday to do that. I'm I'm really feeling it this this morning though because I am um, I played a bit longer than I was planning to. What what happened? Do you just get into the 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 swing of it? Is the buzz just too good? It's one of those ones. You know, you kind of look out in the audience, and I had you know people that flown over for this first show at Croak from all around the world and they'd managed to get tickets for, for Vicar Street and you're sort of looking at it being like this is like a really really special night for them and like I'm going to play this song that they haven't heard for this amount of time or this song and I had um, Steve Mack who I made uh, Shape of You with yeah. had flown over with um, his studio lads and he had re- the reason I wanted to work with him on Shape of You is he wrote Flying Without Wings for Westlife um, so I kind of like chucked that in there and you know like just, just different things just different things to make the show stand out I'm glad you played or that you sang that song last night Flying Without Wings because word got to me this morning that you had played that and I thought I didn't make the connection obviously with the songwriter but we when we had Westlife on recently and they did an acoustic version of it and it's a knockout tune so the thing that I don't understand is when Ronan Keating came out with um, When You Say Nothing At All it's a cover of a um, Alison Krauss song right? and then also If Tomorrow Never Comes is a cover of a Garth Brooks song so they're both big country songs and what I don't understand I lived in Nashville for two years 
2013 and 2018. And I kept saying to country artists out there, I'm like, you should do the opposite. You should be covering Flying Without Wings. Like, you should be basically... Sorry, that's my daughter. <laughs> um, you, should be, um, you should be covering Flying Without Wings because it hasn't reached America yet, basically. Yes. Sorry, that's my daughter. That's okay. Yeah, this is a, of all the interruptions in the world, I think that, that of small children is the most uh, welcome. Yeah, mate, she's great. She's great. Congratulations, the, world, the world's best alarm clock. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, she's called Lyra, isn't she? Lyra Antarctica, what a beautiful name. Yeah, man, she's, uh, yeah, she's named after, if you ever read the Philip Pullman book, she's named after the heroine in that. Wonderful, and she has transformed your life, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> she's good. Yeah. Is she yeah. all right? Do you want to do you want to do the nappy while you're doing the phone call? Because I think that would be very impressive if you could combine uh, the two. Uh, put the I'll phone. Put, up. I, do you know what? As soon as we're done, as soon as we're done, I will. <laughs> okay, I won't detain you too long because nappy is a very pressing matter. But going back to what you were saying about those songs, and are you going to be like pepper your shows in Ireland with with songs like that to kind of surprise us? Because I know you've played the Parting Glass twice now in the last two nights, so your shows I suspect will be infused with this Irish element. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a there's a like there's a balance where I was saying this to someone yesterday because I mm. went to a Coldplay warm-up show and, you know, they were they were reaching in and playing sort of uh, old album cuts and B-sides and stuff like that. And it, and, and it, it was a small venue. And I and I was saying it was really like as a, I'm a huge Coldplay fan and to be able to watch them do that was was great. But if I was to go and see Coldplay at Croke Park and they didn't play Fix You and they didn't yeah, play yeah, yeah. Yellow and they didn't play Paradise, you know, there'd be a certain part of me that would be like, oh, I, you know, I feel shortchanged. So I have to find a balance between fitting in all the songs that people want to hear like there's some songs that I'm cutting from the set that are like big hits but because the set's like it can only fit 22 songs so you have to basically choose really carefully so there'll be like other nights I'll take this song out and put this song in I don't want to play too many I probably will sing Passing Glass to be honest because it's such a nice thing to do in Croke and even whatever, but it's there, there has to be a balance between playing what people want to hear and also giving people what they're not expecting. No, I understand. And during the day, you're here so long because you're going to be playing Tongwon Park and Limerick and Parky Cueve, and you're going to be up there north as well. I know you were in Glass Tool recently. Went to Fitzgerald's Pub for for a pint, and is that what you're what you're doing? By day, I don't mean just drinking pints of Guinness, but by day, how are you occupying yourself? Because, you know, you, you, the gigs are a, a bit away. Well, the Fitzgerald was uh, basically I'd taken my mate Zach out for his 30th. And I'm okay. trying to go relatively sober at the moment for these shows, but I'd missed his 30th birthday party on Friday and he works on the tour. So I took him out for a curry which, you know, you can't have a curry without a beer. So then that beer, beer turned into a few. And then we asked the curry house, like, where does the best pint of Guinness around here? So we went there. So that's that's why I ended up there. But my days are pretty much like, I've got my family here. So right. I'm spending time with my daughter, spending time with my wife. I've obviously got a hell of a lot of family in Ireland as well. So I'm seeing them and catching up with them in, in, in Dublin as well. They're sort of coming up to visit. And I've got family in Cork, so I'll see them in Cork. And family in uh, um that are visiting Limerick as well so it's it's a family affair it's a family but that must be so lovely for you I mean wherever you go in Europe is one thing but to come here and I'm not trying to be all hokey about it but it's, I think it's a very well it's sincere and it's genetically a fact your family are here yeah well it's nice for me it's nice for me with my new family you know my wife and, yeah. and daughter because I've, I came here the best probably four times a year from, from a kid and I would always spend my birthday here and just to be 
show my daughter the culture that her family comes from is mm-hmm. like a really nice thing just to be here firsthand because she hasn't been here yet. This is the first time she's right. been here. And, um, you know, my, my wife's been to Ireland a, a few times, but not for this uh, extended period of time. So we're actually going to be like submerged, submerged here, which is nice. That's awesome, lovely. Um, you would, would you consider uh, taking a place here, maybe have it like a, a summer house or a family home here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, the, the, the thing is, like, if I had a place here, I probably wouldn't tell people. And yeah, fair <laughs> so, point, fair point. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is it's such a special part of the world. Like, I, it's it's one of these things where you know you go to America and people are so in tune with their culture, even if they're like one sixteenth something. Yes. you know, they're they're so in tune with it, and I never ever want to lose that because it's so it's such an integral part of my family. Like, I don't want to lose that with my children I want them to come back and experience the same things that I did yeah um, um, have you been to your old mate Christy Moore have you been in touch with him since he got here no no but I've only been here like like three days, days yeah so of course I should um, I should reach out but uh, no I've literally been I've been hitting the ground running I came here landed took Zach out for a, uh, <laughs> a curry. curry and then I did Wheelands <laughs> okay. and then I did Vicar Street okay it's been nonstop. And, uh, yeah today's my first day I'm coming up for air really you know, I wanted to say before we say goodbye, um, a big thank you for the times you appear on the toy show with us uh, around November. You've been on a couple of times and, you know, you leave a really lovely impact with the children that, that are on set and around the place. And, you know, that is something that I think I'll always uh, appreciate. So thank you for that. Well, I, you know, I don't think that there's anyone that leaves a bigger impact than you, though, man. It's so nice seeing how you react. Like, you, you make the show so fun. From what from what I can gather from the shows of, of yesteryear, yeah. it was a bit more of a, a serious, sombre affair. And uh, it's, it's seeing you kind of get so involved with it and dressing up and stuff, it's so lovely to see. <laughs> you're very kind to say that. But uh, we're only as good as, as who we have in front of us, and, and you're one of the greats. So I appreciate that very much. And look, I'll let you go. You've a nappy to change. You've you've got some serious gigging to do in the next uh, week or so. But uh, welcome home, Ed, and thanks for your time. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. Okay, man. all the best. That. Take it easy, Ed Sheeran, joining us this morning, and he has a busy few days ahead. But I think he's got time to settle and enjoy the country and enjoy his family and, as, as he says, introducing his presumed beautiful baby daughter, Lyra, to the world and his wife, uh, Cherry, uh, who are also welcome and along with his gang and his tour entourage. Ed Sheeran, so many of you listening this morning have tickets to go to see him. Maybe some of you would like some tickets to go to see Ed Sheeran and maybe we should do something about that in the, in the next few minutes. And you know what? We will. That heart is so cold all Thirteen minutes to ten o'clock. Ed Sheeran. Um, somebody says this is Sheila met Ed at Sheeran outside Aldo's restaurant in Panicale in Italy some years ago. He'd just been to Cork playing there. He's a great guy, and his wife was charming. Good luck to him. Well said. And Aoife says the parting glass was a secret track on Ed's first album, beautiful version, and he's been singing it for a long, long time. Yes, he's singing it live here the last two nights, and no doubt you'll be hearing more of it, whether it be in Cork or Limerick or Dublin. Or Belfast. The pint of Guinness uh, um, that Ed had before, he went for Fitzgerald, that's right. And it was in Rassam for the curry and glass tool. Thank you, Michael, for the tip off there. And Nina Conti's puppet, by the way, is called Monkey. Yes, I've seen that. Very funny. Rude, but very funny. Okay. Thanks for the tip off there. 
we're going to give away a few tickets to go and see Ed Sheeran. We'd love to hear from you um, if you would like to get in touch. We do have a number. It's 0818-715-295. Pen and paper. 0818-715-295. Um, and we'll give you a few tickets. You have to come on and we'll ask. We'll, we'll do a really, really hard quiz. They're always very difficult, the quizzes here, uh, to give tickets away. So good luck. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, that's a very thoughtful email that came in during the chat with Ed um, and from Bernie Priestley. And you might remember Bernie's, uh, the Priestley's daughter, Trina, was 15 when she died tragically in 2014, uh, just minutes after she received a phone call from Ed Sheeran. And it was Ed that she said it was her dying wish was she'd love to hear from Ed Sheeran. And he phoned the hospital, spoke to Trina, and she passed away on uh, April the 1st. And uh, Bernie, Trina's mum, got on to say, Ryan, I heard you. uh, You'll be chatting with Ed. And what Ed did for my daughter, Trina Priestley, that fateful day, uh, still fills us full of pride. And when chatting to strangers over the years, talk of family always comes up. So when you share the events of the day, Ed Sheeran sang to Trina, you see their face change and saying, oh, I remember that, that's your daughter. And this fills us with such pride for Trina because she is our daughter, but for Trina, who always wanted uh, people to know about cystic fibrosis and that she was greatly, uh, and what she has achieved globally um, on the 1st of April, 2014. Looking forward to Croke Park on Saturday, says Bernie, where I feel... Trina would have been with her wonderful friends. Hashtag song for Trina. That's very beautiful, Bernie. And wishing you well this morning. And Sean and Kieran and Colm and Owen and Aidan and the whole gang. I'm so glad you got in touch. That's lo- lovely when you think of all the people listening in this morning that you, you, are, you have that very, very special and important connection with, with Ed Sheeran. I want to introduce you to our guest this morning. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about community. We're going to talk about things kicking off for somebody who may be heading towards the stratosphere. Jamie Duffy, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Ryan. How are you doing? Nice to talk to you. Tell us, tell us where you're from, a little bit about yourself, what you're up to, what you're into. Yes, I am from a very beautiful village in North Mullen called Glasslock. Um, I'm studying politics at Queen's. Good and, man. And I'm a musician, so... Okay. Glasslock is that Charlie McKenna's home? That is Charlie. That I, is. I, yeah. I, I remember because we we did a radio show from uh, from there. No, well, not from Charlene's house, but along the way we bumped into her, all her family and yeah. uh, the brothers and everything like that. So that's Glasslock. Yes, the McKenna's. Yes. The McKenna's, indeed. Yeah, great bunch. Okay, so that's where you're from, um, and you're studying in Queens. What are you studying there? I'm studying politics and international relations up in Queens. Oh, what a great great yeah. course to do. How are you enjoying that? It is a great course to do in a great city. It's just, uh, I love it. I, I really love, I've, I've loved every minute of being there since September and, and I'm excited for next year. So. You, you, you're what year are you in there? Second year, but going into final. So it's only a three year degree. So. Okay, but at least you got to get on campus. So when you think of all that, those you know students who didn't get near, or at least only got half a... Yeah, it, it was bleak and it can, be, it can be depressing sitting at home, you know, you know, for a whole year and not talking to people or interacting. So... It was just so good to get to, to get up and, you know, be able to enjoy that part of life. And during uh, lockdown, what did you do? Because you're, you're, you're a musician as well. So tell me a little bit about that. Lo- lockdown is was actually quite a, a positive thing for, to, for me as a musician. I got to, you know, sort of hone in on my own skills. You know, I, had, I was sitting on the piano most days, you know, doing bits and bits and pieces. And then I started a TikTok account and started posting, you know, tin whistle videos on, on there and all that sort of thing. And, and I started writing music and just... It just 
allowed me to do that. So, yeah. you know, every cloud is a silver lining, I suppose. Yeah, you, you, you did that uh, special thing for people, which was you brought some music to some pretty sad funerals where empty churches. Yes, empty churches, you know, it could be, you know, 10 o'clock on a, on, a, on a Wednesday morning, you know, the chapel just freezing, nobody in it and just me and my grandfather upstairs, you know, playing Ned and Hill, put the part in glass or, you know, and just to a, a, a few, a handful of people in the chapel and, you know, I'm, I was always very aware that that was a, a very special thing to be doing and it, it's music moves and I suppose yeah. it, that was just, it's overwhelming, but it was really beautiful too, if that's the right a word. No, to it is the right, no, you're, 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 you're quite right and I found, you know, even on, certainly on the Late Late Show in the two years we were doing it, um, music was always the the bam that was needed and yeah. welcome at, at at every turn as you did with your granddad. Tell me about your granddad and yourself. What's yes. happened to that double act? Well, he is he he is the the main music man in the family. Okay, right now you know him and and Granny. Um, Granny came over from Scotland. He's he's from Glasgow. He came over. Um, and they got married and then they started a band and they've been doing music all their life. You know, show bands and things like that. And and just a, a complete. He's he's the one that sort of you know, pushes me on to do all this. So, you know, them, the both of them. So, you know, it's worked out well so far. Okay. And you yeah. play together. You've got good uh, musical sort of uh, simpatico. Absolutely. He, yeah. his music, his music tastes definitely do rub off me. Absolutely. Um, so he, as I said, great inspiration with the music. And you play also in places like um, the Castle Leslie Estate. You, yes. you're, the, you're the guy on the piano and people are having their dinner. Is the, I was the guy. I'm, I've uh, just left. You left it, there, sorry. Just left. But it's, 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 it, that was that was a great start to, you know, playing in yeah. public and stuff like that. And now I'm in the Europa in Belfast. I love I love a hotel with yeah. live piano. It, yes, there's something about it. Yeah, oh no. It's, and it's, it's a, there's such an atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, especially the hustle and bustle of the city now in Belfast and, you know, such an iconic hotel too, you know. As a politics student, there's no better hotel in the world to be working yeah. than the Europa, you know. The most bombed hotel in the Europe. The most bombed I mean, hotel. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm yeah. sure they're they're tired of that that uh, moniker. <laughs> I, I hear that one whispered at every table, you know, about twenty yeah. times a night. Yeah, it's what people say. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but yet it's a great hotel. We we were there not too long ago, and and Belfast is a city that has emerged from darkness uh, with yes. with great brightness. Actually, yes. it's a it's a it's a buzzing town. Yeah, completely different to the to the city. My my father, you know or my mother lived in, you know, when yeah. they were my age, you know, I have never been aware, you know, I've never encountered any, any, you know, what's the, I don't know what the word, maybe difficulties or division in, sure. in the city. It's just a completely different city. And it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a great city. Your, your world may be about to change and your life may be about to be turned upside down and inside out for the right reasons, I'm glad to say, due to a piece of music uh, called Solace, yes. which I have here, and I'm going to play it in a second, some mm -hmm. of it at least. Tell me about Solace and where it came from. Solace was a lockdown. Not not really lockdown, a pandemic piece, definitely. I was just in Queens one night. I was like, God, I haven't posted a TikTok here in a while. And I was like, I better put something up. I didn't know what to post. So I just played the first melody that came into my head. I could yeah. make up. came to me in about five minutes, and, and I really mean that. Um, I didn't put too much thought into it at the time. Put it up. And woke up the next morning and just, I'm here talking to you. So, <laughs> yeah. What is it about Solace, this piece of music, um, that seems to have captured imagination? I think, as I said, music moves and music can, you know, touch people in different ways. And I think, you know, pardon the pun, but it, it, it has struck a chord with people. Yeah, it has. <laughs> um, it, it means hope. Uh, it means, sorry, light in Irish, yeah. which I think represents hope. And for me, that's what the piece sort of was. When I, the influences when I was writing the piece, you know, just to sort of instill a bit of hope 
um, and that and I think everybody needs a little bit of hope and I, if that can bring people hope I, and light I think that's a really important thing so. and had you gone into Jamie had you gone into the, the did this song come to you at a particular moment in your own life or that in that time um, not it it was there was a lot going on at the time um, and I feel like this song was just sort of given to me nearly because I, I it, it, there wasn't it was just it just sort of as I said it just sort of came to me and there was just a lot happening around me and I feel obviously with whatever within, obviously most of just came out on the on the piano keys and yeah. and and it's it is it emerged and it is what it is now. So. so it is an expression of an emotional moment in your world, which we don't need to get into, other than to say that it it rather than coming out in words, it came out in. You could definitely say that. Would that be fair yeah. to say? Okay. Yeah. Shall we take a little sense? Get a sense of solace well, now. Yeah. I'd love to because uh, this has uh, this song has brought you to. Uh, Paris and Berlin and New York and virtually, uh, virtually, of course, yes, exactly. <coughs> of course, zooming around. Yes, we're zooming around the world. I yeah. should say, um, because people want to talk to you. All these yes. music people want to say, "Who is this guy?" Yeah. Uh, and this is what caught all their attention. compliment I can play, pay to you Jamie listening to that is that it feels like it's been around forever thank you very much I really mean that it's got it's got a real lived in beautiful sense of um, nature I don't know why I'm saying nature but that's what it's, what I'm feeling off that but as you say it's called solace it's about light um, tell me about why or uh, Ukraine and how this has hit home there well you can see um, when you're an artist you have you know your your artist um, you know Spotify for artists or Apple Music for artists yeah. and you can see the demographics of where your music's been listened to and actually the 10th biggest uh, listeners of this piece on Apple Music are Ukrainians and I can go on you know um, and, and look at a map of Ukraine and see all the cities that you know you're seeing on the news you know Kharkiv you know uh, you know Mariupol even in Kiev really? and that's you know it's 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 overwhelming as a musician yeah. um, to see that that piece that you wrote in, in an apartment in Belfast is now being listened to you know and by these, you know, these wonderful people out there in, in Ukraine and, you know. The bombs are falling around their absolutely, heads. Absolutely, yeah. And that, you know, of course that piece playing around in your head too. And But of course, at the end of the day, the, the piece, as I said, hope, hopefully represents light and hope and people find comfort in music. Um, and I hope that whoever does be listening out there in, in Ukraine or, or wherever, you know, who, who might need a bit of hope, oh, they can get some comfort from that. No doubt. And, and it's gone viral in mainland Europe, charting in France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Belgium, Czech Republic, Hungary, yes. Poland, Norway, Austria, stay with us, <laughs> uh, Ukraine, Greece, Turkey, Holland, Russia. And in uh, number two in the French Spotify charts, over half a million monthly listeners on Spotify, uh, making you among the most popular Irish artists on Spotify currently. <laughs> I'm saying this because you're too modest to say it. And <laughs> no, but also in Ireland, we don't uh, tend to say fair play and well done enough. And uh, just want to give you the accolades while while, well, well, while you're sitting you here much. in front of me rather than saying it before it's too late. But it, this is a great achievement. And um, as a, a young Irish man uh, making his way in the world to, to be to be bringing this love and light to people is a great achievement. So well, so fair play to you. Thank you very much. Um, now, you've been talking to record people. What's the plan? I mean, indeed. 
Um, that is probably one of the most stressful parts of it all because I mean <laughs> I'm 20. You know we're from we're from you know the the rural Monan countryside, and we've been sort of thrown into talking to these you know lawyers and lawyers, cigars uh, literally and, 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 you know, yeah, yeah from like out in Berlin and you're like oh, tell me about yourself and I'm sitting there I mean I was saying on local radio the other yeah. day like I was talking to Sony Records last week and as soon as I sat down I said he said tell me about yourself and I sat down and started telling about myself and at that moment sheep broke into the house and my mother got up <laughs> and ran at, you know started like started shouting and then the dog started barking and I was sitting there just staring at this man from Germany, just yeah. like, oh my, oh my God, what am I, what am I, what is, what is uh, life right make, now? I think that, that makes you more interesting. If sheep, <laughs> if sheep break through, that's more it fun. Was, hopefully it'll show the organic side of the whole thing. I don't know. <laughs> or you're the real deal. Got a pastoral element yeah. to the sound, you know, where the oh, influence comes from, maybe. Absolutely. Um, so you, you've you got uh, your, you described, I said your folks are sitting outside here yes, today and yeah, you described yeah. your mother as... A Chris Jenner of Monaghan, I suppose. <laughs> the Monaghan yeah. sounds for Chris Jenner. Your <laughs> yeah. momager, as they call her. My momager, yes. Uh, she is she kind of uh, do they sit in? I mean, you're you're not uh, a minor, like you're twenty years 20 old. Twenty so, years old, yeah. But you you appreciate the parental ad- advice when you can get it. Absolutely, and they love every minute of it. You Are know? they enjoying it? I think so. I think you know they're delighted to be here. They're like you know this is this is crazy to them. So yeah, um, oh, it's 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 great crack, like the whole thing. I'm, I'll, I'll, I don't want to take it at all too seriously because if you did that, you get really stressed. That's for sure. Have you been on the Late Late Show yet? I have not been on the Late Show, hmm. late, late show yet. I think we should. Granny did say, "Now, if I got in front of her October day, you know, she wants her her moment on the late late." Does she? What's she, Granny's name? And she's the mayor of Glasslock, actually. Is she the mayor of Glasslock? She's the mayor of Glasslock. <laughs> Why didn't you begin off the interview? <laughs> if I knew I was sitting talking to the grandson of the mayor of Glasslock, oh, this would have changed everything. <laughs> oh, How is the mayor? The mayor is. Oh, she's. Is she she's, okay today? She's living her best life. Yes. <laughs> Well, I have a very good feeling that I'll be meeting the mayor very soon. Well, that would be incredible. And you, oh. uh, and maybe your folks too. We may, we'll make a glass locked night of it. Oh. We did have the McKenna's, we can do it with the Duffy's. Huh? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so like, we'll talk about that uh, uh, again, but I've got to, I definitely think something should happen there because the, the thought of you playing that song, which in the times we live in on the show, would be really special. So let's see how that all goes. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, uh, I spoke to somebody earlier on in the week, a very successful Irish fashionista, um, about how she has, she was, they, they call her the, uh, the Galway's... Um, I was listening last night, this podcast. Yeah, yes. the, the, it's a fair play yes. to the Emily in Paris. Yes. You know, Ashling, and um, she was saying that one of the things she does is one of the things that Barry Keoghan does, mm-hmm. the notebook. Mm-hmm. The, the manifestation. The manifestation. Yeah. This is your generation's thing and I love it because <laughs> I never did this. Tell me, do you do it? I mean, I didn't know I did it, but I mean, <laughs> the first comment on my TikTok when this went viral was, I am going to write a full piece. I might call it Solace. And then I said at the very end, Tag the Late Late Show. No. And this, I mean. I didn't know this. This is as good as oh. I'm sitting. And that was back in October. That's crazy. And so now I'm talking around Toberty and Orty. So I mean, and we're talking about the Late Late it's, Show. It's uh, just mad. It's been full circle. Like It really is. Yeah. Um, so you, you you kind of, and have you written other things in since? Or are, uh, you, are you afraid, you know, like. Not, I, it's never something I thought about, but I'm, my friends, they're definitely all aware of it. And it's, def, it's really, it was the, the thing of 2021, you know, manifestation and Seems all that. Seems to be, so, yeah. There'll be a run on notebooks in Easton. Absolutely, there's <laughs> going to be a, a, a honestly. <laughs> what what is the what is the dream? I mean, it's a pretty basic question, but what what would you love to to be? You know, if you, in ten years' time, you come back here at the age of thirty and say, "Let's put four Grammys and you know whatever on the table and <laughs> yeah. say, I told you." Uh, what would you love to achieve? Um, there, of course, there's a lot of dreams. I suppose 
I mean, just to be able to do something you love um, and make a career out of it, that yeah. would be ultimate, and be happy yeah. with that would be the ultimate dream. You know, I'm doing a politics degree. I don't know where that's going to take me. If you could mix that in somehow, I don't know how, but you know, the, the world's your oyster. So. Well, you know, the piece of music that we played, Solace, is, it reminds me a little bit about of the, the young man in the bomb uh, the, in, in Ukraine yes. when he's playing his piano outside and Hans, yes, Hans Zimmer put, put the you know put the music to, or at least played it out with the bombed sirens playing yeah. behind him and had that same feel it was, there was almost an urgency uh, but it was also very political so yeah. it, it, the point I'm making is that there's no reason why you can't infuse your music yeah, with music politics. and politics have gone together throughout history for like, sure you know, I mean so. Bob Dylan is, absolutely you know and and, uh, and so many other we could be here all day talking about yeah. it but uh, as JD in Athlone says this morning on text uh, that uh, the Jamie's music sounds like Debussy or Carolyn yeah uh, beautiful would they be influences they, absolutely and you mentioned Hans Zimmer I mean he's uh, just a, a, a legend and you know Ludovico and Audi you know all those those guys are just just so incredible if I could be you know a quarter of what of what they could like what a quarter what of what they have put into their music, you know, I'd be on the right track. You'd be on the right track. Okay. Yeah. Well look, uh, and again a nice musical pun. I'm a big fan of puns. Um, so you're on the right track. No doubt about it. Jamie, it's been great to meet you. Thank you know, it's funny because you've got a good, strong Monaghan accent, which hey. I love because now I know where you're from. Yeah. You know, Oliver Callan, for all his accents and all his messing, <laughs> comes in here and you wouldn't know where in the world he was from at all. You know, because Oh, he, Oliver, he's great. He's 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 got he's, it's a, he's got a, such a neutral accent whereas yeah. you're you're the real he's in a skein man so he's from sort of the south of the uh, side of the county opposite ends of the county so. maybe that explains that it. maybe, maybe explain. i just don't know my man well, i'm i'm i oh, no, i'm we're on the border there in glasslock so there could be a bit of bit of northern now in belfast in the last year as well so. okay so there's a twang perhaps, in there perhaps and yeah, he's might uh, have to work on that he's in Kavanaugh country yes um you could uh yeah i could see you i could see Kavanaugh and your Raglan Road music yeah. or well, there you yeah. go you know or somebody could do something I can see more of that a wonderful young man says Anne so talented great music looking forward to hearing more uh, keep giving these young talented people the airtime um, easy. Uh, easy it's easy to do that when the, when the talent is here um, with somebody in Ballantyr saying uh, lovely composition lovely name it reminds me of some of Mihola Sulawan actually that's who that reminded me as well yes Mihola another Sulawan. absolute legend yes Mihola, for sure absolutely. Uh, I wonder if Jamie had inspiration from Mihola's work too because um, there's a sense of that in. I'm going to play a little bit more if you don't mind because absolutely. it's so lovely yes. and we'll say goodbye on this and let you head back to your momager and your dad <laughs> and to no doubt plenty of meetings I suspect I'll be seeing you very soon so um, thank you for being here Till the mayor I was asking for, and <laughs> uh, now. we'll be having the chats <laughs> in due course. Jamie Duffy, the composer of Solace. That's, do you know when you just think that was a moment? Um, that's uh, Jamie Duffy there, 20 years old, his own comp- composition called Solace. Um, lovely fellow. I think, yeah, that's not the last we're going to hear of, of him, no doubt about it. And um, hopefully, maybe see him soon, uh, some Friday night soon. And sitting in my kitchen, so it's like listening to this piece. And I think it captures what life feels like for all of us right now. It's beautiful. It is very, very, very beautiful. Um, 
you know, last Friday, the, the show began musically with uh, an artist called Shobsi, who I just rate very highly. And he sang his version of Small Town Boy. And he left a card, very unusual, uh, but left a card for me to, before the, the whole thing. And he said some very meaningful words in the card, which I thought was really nice. And as Jamie was leaving today, he produced from his inside his pocket, as it were, a card. He threw it, placed it down in front of me. He said, that's for you. Thank you. And I was reading it during listening to his song. And it's a thank you card for having, for being here today. This is, again, another young fella. Uh, doesn't need to be writing cards to creatures like me, but it's such... And uh, he... Uh, you want to see what he wrote right? it's it's private but it's meaningful and that song is actually quite moving in a very intense way when you when you get a sense of Jamie's story and I'm sure he'll share it at some point in his life but you can see why solace and light and music uh, mean so much to him at this point in his world um, but I'm just struck by the manners and the decency of these young guys who are um, trying to make it in the world in their f- chosen fields but at the same time um, grateful for uh, every opportunity they get along the way Very, I just find it deeply impressive and credit to their families and you are loving that piece of music and that's great I don't blame you it's, it's lovely I thought the Michal uh, Osuluan was great uh, com- uh, comparison I definitely felt that lovely strain of, of uh, thought there beautiful says the text it uh, made me stop and listen and that's that's powerful music. There's no question about it. Oliver's moderate Monaghan accent, says a text, might be explained by the fact that his mother's from Cork. Well, that explains everything. Okay, that, that, thank you for that. Uh, uh, now I know. Uh, could you say hello to all the, to the final year med students of UCD? Of course, last day of school today, exams next week. Wishing everyone the best luck. It's been an emotional final year. I agree. It's wonderful. I got a feeling, Ryan, you'll be playing this music again in years to come when Jamie is a superstar. I, th- I really believe that it is going to be uh, we're into um, uh, Grammy material and, dare I say it, Oscar material at some point. That that This guy has a bright future, no doubt. Monaghan is producing so many stars. It's a good day for Monaghan today, no question. 20-year-old from Dublin here, treated myself to a lion this morning, woke up to hear that incredible piece of music. Uh, so moving. What a way to wake up. Ah, well, listen, that's all credit to Jamie Duffy. 